Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Ross Carroll, who's the author of Uncivil Mirth, Ridicule in Enlightenment Britain. Um, we're going to learn a lot about mirth, um, ridicule, sarcasm, and all kinds of other fun things today as we talk to Ross um, about his understanding of this concept within Enlightenment Britain and among political theorists. Um, I'd like to welcome Ross Carroll to the New Books Network and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Ross. Hi, Lily. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me on the on the podcast. Um, well, um, who well, who am I? Well, I'm I'm Ross Carroll. I'm a lecturer in political theory at the University of Exeter, um, but I'm from Ireland originally. And um, I, actually, a friend of mine said to me recently that my book um, is a very Irish book because it's uh, it deals with humor and is about is is about Britain. <laughs> so uh, um, the uh, the book came to me as an idea um, towards the end of my PhD. It's not a it's not a, a sort of dissertation converted into a book. I, I had been working on something else for my PhD. Um, I've been working on Enlightenment responses to enthusiasm or fanaticism in the 18th century. And um, towards the end of my time, uh, this is at Northwestern in Chicago. Um, towards the end of my time at Northwestern, I realized that one of the responses to enthusiasm that I was most interested in um, was the Third Earl of Shaftesbury's. Uh, a proposal that fanatics or enthusiasts, um, as he would have called them, um, were best laughed at rather than dealt with in a more severe way. And certainly not, uh, certainly he thought that they should not be persecuted, right? So Shaftesbury, just to give a little bit of context as to who he is, he's not the most well-known figure in the history of of political thought, certainly. Um, He is a... uh, the grandson of the first Earl of Shaftesbury, who was essentially the engineer of the 1688 so-called Glorious Revolution. Uh, and he uh, spent a lot of his uh, his life trying to fight to solidify uh, the accomplishments of that revolution and particularly uh, to, if you like, embed a culture of religious toleration in uh, in Britain. And uh, he did so partly under the tutelage of, of John Locke. So one of the uh, one of the sort of interesting things about Shaftesbury is that his early education was to some extent organized by John Locke. Uh, some have speculated that Locke's writings on education might have been a kind of blueprint for how Shaftesbury himself was educated. So I mentioned that Shaftesbury was responding uh, to enthusiasm. Um, And in particular, he was responding to an event that occurred in 1706. In that year, uh, a number of what they were called French prophets arrived in England um, from uh, from, uh, Louis XIV's France. They were fleeing persecution after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. There was a um, a heightened intolerance for Huguenots uh, in France at that time. And they joined a, a group of Huguenot exiles who had 
who had arrived over earlier. But these particular uh, Huguenots were uh, particularly ecstatic in how they worshipped. They prophesied uh, the destruction of London. They uh, would talk in tongues. Very. They would, uh, you know, encourage uh, people to, um, to to come to their services and imitate their practices. And they caused a little bit of a stir in England. Um, they alarmed the authorities. Members of the English nobility, um, particularly Sir John Lacey, you know, were attracted by their activities and started to, to join them as a group. So they seemed to be kind of, even though they had no political agenda, they seemed to be coming quite potent as a, as a force within uh, English life. And um, they rattled uh, the government who were tempted to, to, to persecute them, to sort of roll back uh, some of the commitment to toleration that had been uh, established uh, following the 1688 revolution and to say enough is enough. These are, these are fanatics. They are threatening our society. We need to intervene more heavy handedly. Shaftesbury said, no, that's the wrong approach. Um, if you try to uh, persecute them, you're just giving them what they want, right? They, uh, they actually desire to be physically persecuted um, that would confirm in their minds that they are martyrs, uh, that they are doing God's work, and that they are sort of the chosen mouthpieces uh, of the divine. Um, Shaftesbury said, look, look at what the puppeteers are doing uh, in Smithfield Market. They are um, mocking these prophets, um, uh, suggesting that their claims to divine inspiration are nonsense. Um, that's the real way to counter them. Uh, it's consistent with toleration, uh, but at the same time, it is a response and it does sort of diffuse their power. So I was just utterly fascinated by this argument because in this text where he makes this argument, it's called The Letter Concerning Enthusiasm, which Shaftesbury publishes in 1708. In this text, he not only suggests this use of ridicule as a response to this specific problem or this specific instance of fanaticism, he also suggests that there's a, a more general utility to ridicule, that it has this kind of power, that it can be used to counter conceitedness, hypocrisy, um, what he calls false gravity, you know, where people will pretend by putting on a kind of serious demeanor, um, you know, hide their true intentions or try to sort of win over uh, an audience through presenting themselves as being serious and, and authoritative. Jasper was sort of recommending this as a general rhetorical tool uh, that could serve all these different purposes. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because usually we think about the Enlightenment as the age of reason, right? This is supposed to be about rational argumentation, the triumph of, of reason over religious superstition and so on. But it was also the age of ridicule. And it was the age of ridicule, not because of Shaftesbury. I mean, there was Shaftesbury in some respects was responding to a great sort of opening up of the, uh, of the public sphere uh, in the early 18th century after... Uh, the previous censorship regime uh, lapsed in the 1690s. You know, there was a huge outpouring of satirical prints, of squibs, of um, poems, pamphlets, all of which uh, engaged in mockery of political opponents and so on. So he's he, Shaftesbury is not sort of fueling this, but he is um, he's sort of one of the few philosophers to sort of respond to this and say, well, is this something to be welcomed? And he said, well, generally speaking, yes, that... Um, that ridicule has this sort of power that has been hitherto unrecognized. And if we did recognize it, um, this, it, could, it, would, it could be a force uh, for good in the world. Now, that's when I thought, well, there might be an idea for a book here, because what I quickly realized is that 
this pamphlet was deeply controversial um, and people were responding to it. Other philosophers, other political theorists were responding to it pretty much uh, for the remainder of the 18th century. The debate wasn't limited to Britain. Um, other philosophers across the continent, uh, in Germany, for example, Leibniz uh, took an interest in this controversy. Uh, Montesquieu, uh, who I mentioned in chapter four of the book, he uh, took a, uh, a passing interest in it as well. So it's not exclusively a British debate, but it mainly uh, occurs within Britain. And that's where I thought, okay, there's my focus. I've got uh, this debate on on uh, uh, about ridicule. And it's a debate that sort of divides into two main camps. There's what I call the Hobbesians, and, and these are the, the the philosophers who, if you like, take seriously the corrosive impact of ridicule, right? They, they're the ones who say, um, starting with Hobbes himself, of course, in the 17th century, that to ridicule someone is to communicate contempt for that person. Um, it's to inspire a particular kind of uncivil emotion, um, contempt. Um, and that it can have devastating impacts, therefore, on social life. It can uh, it can it can lead to um, strife, antagonism, and maybe even violence. So there's kind of a, a suspicion of, of ridicule in that tradition. The the people who are worried about uh, ridicule kind of spilling out of control and becoming this weapon that is used in place of argument or used instead of more um, sedate or civil forms of exchange. That that's one tradition. The, the people who are worried about it in that sense, in some respects, they they correspond to people today who worry about the effects, say, of Twitter on 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 our political life. That people kind of go in for the quick, you know, the, the quick repartee, uh, the quick uh, pylon or mockery uh, as a way of engaging with opponents rather than sort of engaging with them more seriously or earnestly. The other camp then are those who sort of follow Shaftesbury's example and say, no, no, there's actually something incredibly emancipatory about ridicule, that it is a way, there are certain forms of power that um, cannot really be challenged using earnest methods of argument and debate. They they actually cry out for something else. And, and ridicule can often be that something else. It can be that way of engaging with uh, with an opponent that, that, if you like, strips away uh, the authority that they assume for themselves and kind of exposes them in a way that ordinary argument can't. So that's sort of how the, the debate is roughly structured, at least the way I tell the story in the book. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's nuance, of course, at the margins there, but roughly speaking, that's how the debate unfolds. And, and so the Shaftbarian school, is that the correct terminology? No, school, but sure. <laughs> um, is one that was looking at using ridicule within a, a pl- sort of political response, um, that it's a political tool uh, that that can be taken up. Um, but I, I would like for you to explain a little bit more about the Hobbesian school um, and, and how this was, because you talk about the fact that Hobbes isn't quite exactly where the, the people who follow Hobbes put him um, in discussing ridicule. Yeah, you know, Thomas Hobbes is one of those unfortunate philosophers who always gets kind of caricatured when people respond to him. I think this is a problem that endures to this day. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. So the I use the adjective sort of Hobbesian rather than referring to Hobbes himself, because a lot of the time his argument about laughter, ridicule gets 
uh, really overly simplified in uh, in the 18th century. So let me just start with Hobbes himself and then explain how his how this approach to to, to laughter sort of emerges after uh, after his um, his death. So in Leviathan and a couple of other of his works, um, Hobbes sort of tries to identify the passion that lies at the origin of laughter. So he calls uh, laughter a particular kind of grimace, right? And he's saying, well, what what, what causes this particular grimace? And he says, well, uh, th- this, he says it's a passion that has no name. So typical Hobbes, he tries to immodestly claim that he's the first one to sort of give it a name. And he calls it sudden glory, right? So this is... Um, a feeling of sudden feeling of preeminence um, that we have vis-a-vis someone else. Now, the reason why I say this is later caricatured is that Hobbes is quite careful to qualify this. He says, for example, that we can experience sudden glory in relation to our former selves, not just in relation to someone else. So it's not just that when we uh, triumph over someone else or, uh, you know, defeat them in some way that we laugh and triumph at their loss or at our kind of greatness compared to them. It's uh, we can also laugh at our former selves. I think you know. I think everyone listening to this podcast remembers a foolish outfit they wore when they were a teenager, and you can look back at that and think, and you laugh, right? And it's not a malicious laugh. You're not going, "Oh my god, what an idiot I was," or "How could I possibly have, have worn that?" But it's sort of a laugh that, nevertheless, is a laughter of superiority. You're like, "I've I've changed a bit. I've matured a bit. I'm no longer in that phase." You know. Um. So Hobbes maintains that there, there can be self-directed laughter of that sort. Um, but he is um, concerned that because laughter has this this origin in glory, right, in sudden glory, that it, it can have antisocial implications, right? So it can be uh, used to demean and humiliate others. If we are, if if to be laughed at is to be triumphed over, then laughter becomes deeply uncivil, right? It becomes um, something that corrodes uh, the bonds of civil society. And so that a lot of those who came after Shas- uh, Hobbes, including Shaftesbury and those who followed Shaftesbury, like Hutchison, were, were determined to try and challenge that notion of laughter. So Hutchison, for example, is one of Shaftesbury's closest readers. You know, he challenges Hobbes directly and says, look, no, it's just not the case that laughter always emerges from a feeling of triumph or glory. Um, you know, the laughter of a child, you know, is not about glorying over anybody. A baby in the pram laughs um, in response to a game of peekaboo. That's clearly not a laughter of contempt, although I'm sure some parents will think that their babies are regarding them with contempt sometimes. Um, but so Hutchison tries to say, look, Hobbes has to have it wrong, or at least he only captures one element of laughter. There are other more sociable elements. And here's uh, where Hutchison tries to build on Shaftesbury and say, not only is, is ridicule useful for challenging illegitimate authority, uh, or useful as a, as, a, as a means of exposing or questioning authority. It's also useful as a, a way of creating community. So it, it can forge bonds of friendship. I mean, how many people, you know, have made good friendships through sharing a joke or sharing a laugh together? So laughter is something that can be shared. Now, again, this is a little bit where Hobbes is treated on, unfairly because Hobbes does indeed say that there there can be uh, laughter in a group at some absurdity in the world, right? So he does suggest that not all laughter has that interpersonal competitive element. Sometimes you can have a group of people laughing at at some fo- uh, at human folly in general, right? You could have you, people laugh at human vice, human human foolishness. Uh, Hobbes allows for that entirely. 
but nevertheless, there is this attempt to try and say, look, Hobbes's uh, Hobbes's version of laughter is not the full picture, right? There is this other uh, other side to laughter that can be used as a resource in politics uh, uh, to sort of build a community rather than tearing a, a community apart. And and so this is the sort of dynamic within the book is the the school that comes from Hobbes, not necessarily Hobbes himself, but that comes out of him and and his work. And also that comes out of Shaftesbury and, and his work. Um, and part of what um, brings us together, at least as I was reading it and understanding it, is the question of how ridicule and laughter, um, as and they're not the same, but they are connected to one another, how they provide uh, something to do with sociability. Um, and you talk about this is this is really the crux of why this is political also, um, because it's about how to build a community um, or how to exist with one another. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this question of sociability comes into the discussion around ridicule and laughter? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the reasons why Shaftesbury is so relaxed, if you like, about the use of ridicule in debate, in politics, is that he believes in the fundamental sociability of mankind, right? If, if there's one philosophical principle that Shaftesbury clings to consistently throughout his career is that it is that Hobbes is wrong to say that human beings, uh, you know, regard one another as competitors or that human beings are fundamentally unsociable. Uh, he you know, in a, in a quite a clever response to Hobbes, he says, you know, sometimes the things that are pointed to as evidence of human depravity or human unsociability actually are the opposite. So he says faction, look at the existence of faction within the state is often seen as a symptom of our lack of sociability. He says, but what is a faction? It is a group. It is a collection of people who have come together for a common purpose. That common purpose might be, you know, seditious or it might be threatening to the public as a whole, but faction itself is just a kind of, um, if you like a misdirection of a basic sociable instinct that all of us have, right? So, what he so tied in with this notion of natural sociability is Shaftesbury's argument that that ridicule that is misdirected or ridicule that is abused um, will actually not have that much of an effect because he believes that that which is truly natural, truly sociable, truly good cannot be laughed at. There's a kind of immunity to ridicule that the natural and the good enjoy. So, you know, he gives, you know, if you try to, to, to laugh at something uh, that is uh, that is not intrinsically ridiculous, if you try to laugh at something that is that is nat- natural and good, you will end up looking ridiculous. It will simply rebound, right? It will backfire. And this is why he thought it was, it was safe to allow ridicule to uh, to uh, to spread, if you like, in a society, why it was okay for people to use it, because gradually uh, people would work out what is truly ridiculous from what isn't. Now, that is, for the likes of David Hume, who came after Shaftesbury, you know, he says, well, that's just not true. And, and Sir John Brown as well, another one of Shaftesbury's critics, they'll say, you know, whether someone laughs at something is pretty contingent, right? It's not actually a sign of something being truly uh, ridiculous if, if, they, if people are laughing at it. It's, it's just... It's a sign that whoever the ridiculer is has been particularly clever at presenting this object in a ridiculous light. Right? It's just a rhetorical technique, and rhetorical techniques 
can be used for all sorts of different purposes. They're not always used for exposing the good or the true. So this is why, so this sense that, that uh, ridicule has nothing to do with exposing the intrinsically ridiculous, you know, this is one of the reasons why it can be unsociable um, uh, for the likes of, of, of Hume and, and Brown, right? That, so Brown says that this, this proposal that we use ridicule to, to, to test things, to test their worth, which is partly what Shaftesbury is arguing for, he says that's a disastrous idea because you know people will start to test everything with ridicule and it will it'll be boundless right there'll be no um, there'll be no, there'll be nothing to regulate the use of ridicule in this way and it will as he says destroy mutual charity among people if if uh, if if it's the sort of first thing that people use when they're trying to test the worth of something you're just going to get. Uh, Acrimony. You're going to get uh, uh, an uncivil condition, right? You're, you're going to compromise um, sociability. So it's uh, so Shaftesbury's, if you like, defense of ridicule is is sort of bound up with his more general moral teleology, right? He believes that there is such a thing as the natural, the good, and that this uh, will withstand ridicule in a way that other things won't. He's that's why he proposes it as a test, right? There, there is a he calls it the test of ridicule. That um, if, if something can withstand the test, then it is that's a sign that it has a kind of intrinsic worth. And the example he gives, um, Shaftesbury being a huge fan of the ancients, um, the, the example he gives here is Socrates. He's a Socrates. He has this kind of curious um, retelling of Socrates's life and career in Athens. So he sort of says, "Look, you know, most of us think of uh, of Socrates's demise uh, through the lens of Plato's Apology, where." Uh, you know, the, the early accusers sort of set the scene and lay the groundwork and, uh, you know, basically demolish uh, Socrates' reputation and present him, they present him as a sophist. And then later on, the Athenians put him on trial and execute him. Shaftesbury tells a totally different story. He says that uh, if you look at um, the performance of Aristophanes' The Clouds, which is a play making fun of Socrates, uh, you know, it, Shaftesbury says... Socrates or, Shastri, or Socrates did rather well out of this, that he he went along to the play and um, watched it be performed and stood up so that everyone could see that he was the one being mocked. And everyone thought he was pretty good humored as a result. And his reputation within Athens was enhanced. So it's a, it's a really curious uh, um, moment, if you like, in, in, in Shastri's work, because he's, he's sort of saying, look, um, if if Socrates can take a joke and 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 withstand ridicule, um, then you know other people who are similarly good should also be, you know, sh- should also should also not fear it, right? It, that it's, uh, uh, it, you know, to sh- to show that you are able to laugh at and be laughed, uh, to, to laugh and laugh at and be laughed at in turn, uh, he says is, um, you know, that's a sign that you that you that you have an intrinsic worth that cannot be denied, right? So. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a quite a curious argument, but it didn't convince a lot of people because they thought, no, this is, is you know, it's, it's there's all sorts of instances of people who are truly good or truly virtuous who are being humiliated and suffer real consequences as a result. And you know, many of them who responded to Shaftesbury says, your own example of Socrates is a, is a poor one because Socrates does end up. Uh, uh, you know, being killed by the people of Athens, they don't respect him after Aristophanes's mockery of him. So, you know, in ways, you know, he his argument was never going to have an easy time of it. 
it's also an interesting reading of of this is sort of Socratic tale. Um, and and so I, I wanted to take you through a couple of more of the examples that you use in the book in terms of discussing um, this idea of the use and socio- sociability of ridicule, because you do start out with the, the Hobbes Shaftbury sort of debate and, and sort of tension. Um, but then you move through to um, Hume, and ultimately you get to some of the abolitionists as as an interesting case study um, of how to make use of this in a political forum. Um, can you? I, I was very curious about that case study. Can you sort of talk a bit about how this got integrated into sort of political vocabulary and rhetoric? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, that, that chapter maybe is, it might seem a little out of place in some respects because I'm not really dealing with philosophers there, right? These are polemicists. Uh, these are um, Scottish, mostly abolitionists who are determined to uh, end the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. And I think what I was trying to do in that chapter is to, first of all, think about how um, how ridicule uh, could be used for um, causes that were were not just about sociability, but about, I suppose, countering enormous social evil. Um, and for these abolitionists, the greatest social evil of their time was was the slave trade. And the because in in the previous chapter, in chapter four, I'm looking at some of the uh, other Scottish theorists of humor. Most of them uh, were pretty adamant that that ridicule, to the extent that it can be a corrective. Uh, is mainly useful for correcting minor vices and foibles. So, you know, um, somebody who's a bit uh, arrogant or prideful can be kind of chopped down to size using a witty joke. Uh, a kind of use, you know, using the sort of minor teasing and humiliation to try and correct someone's behavior. Like that is generally how, from Hutchison through to the likes of Adam Smith, uh, this is how um, British philosophers. Uh, conceive of the utility of ridicule. It has that, you know, it has that social function. It allows us to uh, to correct minor social uh, faux pas, vices, and so on. What's different about these abolitionists that I came across in, uh, when researching Chapter Five is that, wait a minute, these guys are actually interested in using ridicule for a far more ambitious purpose. It's not just about correcting minor social faux pas. It's about challenging a structure of power that is immense. Uh, uh, incredibly difficult to dismantle and that has a lot of vested interests behind it. And I thought it was inc- just incredibly bold, but also I think studying these figures uh, allowed me to see that the image we have of the abolitionist movement, at least in the 1790s Britain, is a little bit one-sided. So we tend to think about this as a deeply Christian movement, right, that's um, uh, often uh, associated with the Quakers, um, that it was about uh, redeeming Britain from the sin of slavery, that it was a lot of sort of deep, uh, serious religious rhetoric. What I wanted to show is that there was also a more facetious side or kind of a a darkly humorous side to how some of these abolitionists went about their their business. So just to give uh, an example, um, so a couple of the uh, figures I look at in this chapter were were deeply concerned with... uh, mocking David Hume because of Hume's notorious uh, footnote in of national characters, the essay, one of his essays uh, that he published in the 1740s. Uh, um, this 
footnote, in this footnote, Hume had essentially declared the supremacy of or the superiority of, of the white race uh, over uh, over non-whites. And you know, the the for some of Hume's opponents, such as James Beattie, uh, you know, just responding to to Hume with with a serious refutation wasn't enough. So they would say things like. You know, well, Hume, you're a pretty, you're a pretty big guy. Are you trying to, and you're trying to associate physical characteristics uh, of black people with with mental inferiority. Is does that mean that we all have to be as bulky as you uh, if we want to, to to be a philosopher? You know, so there's there's a kind of a, you know, there's a real bitterness to this form of ridicule where it's it's not enough just to say Hume, you're wrong in this claim you make about African civilization and so on. It's you know he has to be. Challenged in a different way, the worst, or at least the the most difficult to read of the uh, of the pieces I think I look at in that chapter is undoubtedly James Titler's um, satire uh, that he published in in the seventeen in the seventeen nineties debate um, called "A Petition of the Sharks of Africa to the House of Commons," where this is a a really grimly humorous. Uh, piece of writing where James Titler, who's a, again, another, another Scott, he, he wants to, in this, in this particular piece, he argues from the perspective of sharks swimming in the Atlantic ocean who have profited immensely from, uh, slaves, slave bodies being over, over, uh, uh thrown overboard during the middle passage, right? So it, this has been a rich source of food. These sharks argue to them and so they petitioned the House of Commons to to uh, turn a deaf ear to these abolitionists and can make sure the trade continues so that sharks can continue to enjoy this rich source of food. So it's um, it's it's incredibly uh, bleak uh, in, in its uh, in its humor. It's it's quite swifty in this. It's a little bit like Swift's modest proposal uh, in some respects. Um, but this, I think, is a really surprising piece of writing because again shows that it's. You know, at a time when petitions to Parliament to end the slave trade were, you know, were so numerous. I mean, the, the petitions that came from you know so, so many towns across the country. Here's was like here was a, here's here was another petition, but with you know with a very different uh, objective in view. Right? It was it was precisely to show in a kind of shocking way, you know, the, the sort of gr- the gross moral depravity of the slave trade. It's in, in ways I think it's more effective than some of the more earnest. Uh, 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 polemics uh, written at the time. And we have contemporary examples of that when people have embodied corporations um, since since some of the Supreme Court decisions around corporations being people um, in the United States as a as another sort of contemporary version of of that same approach. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the inspiration for a lot of this, not 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 Titler, but um, many of these other abolitionist was was actually Montesquieu who had you know he he in the in the spirit of the laws has this perplexing chapter on slavery where he essentially advances in a in a sarcastic way all of these arguments in favor of continuing slavery uh, or continuing the african slave trade and the this inspired many of um these abolitionists partly because they were uh, Montesquieu was such a revered figure, right? And the spirit of the laws was such a dominant text in the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, he was an authority. You know, you, if you could, if you could imitate Montesquieu, you were you were imitating someone who had a great deal of um, uh, of authority within uh, Enlightenment debate. And so, 
it is interesting to see how um, how his example was was taken up um, by uh, the likes of uh, Alexander Geddes, for example, who wrote um, his own apology for slavery, where he essentially outlines all of these arguments for continuing slavery, and they're supposed to be arguments that are um, you know obviously ridiculous, right? And and but yet similar enough to actual arguments that were being advanced that readers would be able to identify the similarity and say, ah, yes, this is. Uh, this this does indeed show that those who have the gall to defend slavery are you know are just uh, you know substituting raw interest for argument. They're not actually in good faith. They are just trying to protect their interests. And and the the last sort of arc of your argument in the book is with regard to Mary Wollstonecraft, um, and and her sort of um, biting um, integration of ridicule and satire in terms of, of sort of rights of men and women. Um, can you explain how she sort of is one of the inheritors of <laughs> this um, school of thought and writing? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, um, um, you know, one of the things that alerted me to Wollstonecraft as a thinker that I might include uh, in this book is was her text, The Vindication of the Rights of Men, which is in some respects her less known work, or it's less popular at least. Um, she's best known for The Vindication of the Rights of Woman uh, for good reasons. But The Vindication of the Rights of Men opens with this curious um, kind of, in a sense, double move. On the one hand, she she kind of condemns Edmund Burke um, in his Reflections of the Revolution uh, in France for ridiculing and humiliating her mentor, Richard Price. Um, Wollstonecraft knew Price personally. Um, she had benefited greatly from his mentorship. And so I think took personal umbrage at Burke's disrespect uh, for Price in uh, the opening sections of the of the reflections on the revolution in France. So you've got this sort of, um, she's kind of claiming that, that Burke has bullied uh, Price, that, that he has uh, compromised his own uh, standing as a politician, he has cheapened himself by, you know, sinking to this level uh, and and, uh, and and mocking Price when he should be arguing with them. And then she just goes on and does almost exactly the same to him, right? So, so there's kind of a, but she does so in a way that makes a quite uh, direct allusion to this debate that began with Shaftesbury. So she accuses Burke of trying to treat ridicule as a test of truth, which in a sense had become a kind of trope in the 18th century, right? So in, in some cases, Shaftesbury's argument was engaged with in a very serious way by philosophers who were trying, actually interested in trying to work out the relationship between ridicule and truth and so on. But in sort of more popular writing, the notion of ridicule as a test of truth um, almost became kind of detached from that whole philosophical debate. I think some people didn't even realize that it originated with Shaftesbury by the time you get to the 1790s. Maybe Wollstonecraft wasn't aware of its provenance either, but it's it, this was a, a, a signal to me that actually she is tapping into something, some of these same debates, right? She, that she is also interested in uh, in ridicule as a rhetorical technique and also interested in its potentiality and its limitations. And so as with sort of all the chapters in the book, what I tried to do there is to, is to show that she was kind of deeply wary of ridicule, of the damage it could do, of the of the of the corruption of character that it sometimes displayed, um, while at the same time wishing to uh, 
use a version of it to advance uh, her politics. So let me deal with both sides of that. So in terms of, 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 of the critique of ridicule, across her educational writings, um, Wollstonecraft um, was deeply worried about um, the, the, the signs, you know, worried about the practice of, of say, mocking uh, that you would see among teenagers or, or young people, that if they, are, if they too quickly acquire the habit of mocking people less fortunate of the, to themselves, that this would actually breed a kind of insolence and arrogance in their character that would make them poor citizens later on. So she's, uh, she thinks particularly among young people that they need to, to weed out that habit. Um, she worries that, uh, that young women, particularly at social gatherings, will often use uh, witticisms uh, in a conversation in order to gain attention, largely because they don't have anything of substance to say in the conversation. And, you know, Wollstonecraft is famously actually quite harsh on a lot of the women of her day. I mean, she, is, she says the reason why they behave this way is because they have been denied a good education. And, you know, her main project in the Vindication of the Rights of Women is to explain why they, you know, why they need a different kind of education. But, you know, she's, she's, she observes the women of her day and, and is not impressed. You know, she thinks, you know, th- this is, they have, they have recourse to ridicule too quickly. Um, they, they're, they're not capable of, 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 of good argumentation. So she seems very hostile to ridicule through a lot of her education writings. And in terms of her own personal experience, even her own, in her own letters, at one point she traveled to Eton and she was really disdainful of the kind of haughty male culture of, of exchanging witticisms and kind of gaining, you know, playing one-upmanship um, using puns and, and, uh, and silly jokes. She described in a letter to her sister, Everina, puns flying around like firecrackers, you know, in Eton. Like it was, just, and as a sign, this is just a debased culture. Um, so she, on the one hand, on the surface, she really seems quite hostile to ridicule. She thinks that a Republican project, uh, a Republican sort of, you know, uh, uh, renovation uh, or, or, or um, rejuvenation of, of English politics uh, requires sobriety, requires argument, requires reason rather than ridicule. And yet, you know, her arguments are laced with ridicule, uh, and in particular, her, her attack on Burke. And so this was the sort of interpretive puzzle I was working with a little bit in, in that chapter. I mean, what is the, she clearly doesn't think of all ridicule as having the same uh, dangers attached to it. Clearly, in some cases, it's it's beneficial. And the way, I think the the use for ridicule that she identified that I found most fascinating is in the Vindication of the Rights of Woman, where she actually says that, okay, how do we, she's dealing with the problem of how um, the tutors of young girls should kind of inoculate them against the impact of sentimentalist novels. Um, And she she, she kind of disdained a lot of these novels. She thought, you know, they, they were... They gave a terrible example to young girls. They presented human relations in this really artificial way. They gave them romantic notions about what romance would be like. Um, it, you know, it, it kind of encouraged a sort of fixation with marriage and so on. So she was just she's just really worried about the impact these novels will have. But she's also not naive enough to think that you can just tell them not to read them. Right? They're, the culture is awash with them. Uh, they're everywhere. They're going to get their hands on them. So what do you do? And she says she has a really innovative proposal which is that you hire a separate tutor with a turn for humor she says who can teach these girls to laugh at the ridiculous representation of human relations in these novels and it's it's what's fascinating is that she she does she, she does seem to suggest that this should be a separate tutor uh, to the main tutor right so the, it, it, i suppose the main tutor if they happen to be a gifted 
humorist or have a turn for wit, maybe they could you know double task. But in any case, she 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 is very specific that this should be someone with who has a turn for humor who can sort of bring these girls through the novels and like you know basically mimic, laugh at, encourage the girls to mock um, the ridiculous representations they see in those novels. And this, I think, drawing Wollstonecraft was deeply indebted to Lockean. Uh, psychology. She thought that habits of mind developed early on would then, uh, you know, would, would then influence uh, later character. And so she was, she is, I think, or what I argue is that she's trying to develop ridiculing habits that will remain with these girls as they go through life, right? As they become women, as they become citizens, uh, she hopes, uh, you know, they will uh, be able to use um, ridicule not only to, de- to detect uh, spuriousness uh conceitedness and so on um but also that they would be able to 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 use ridicule as a kind of way of asserting their own dignity right that if if uh if they're confronted by a representation of women as as vain as fickle as irrational and so on that they wouldn't just ignore it that they could actually push back uh and and push back in a way that wasn't just again about pointing out how this was wrong, but actually pointing out how it's not just wrong, but ridiculous, not just erroneous, not just false, but absurd. So this is the the the, the thing about ridicule that I think this is a, goes throughout the book is that it is an assertion of dignity uh, uh, to, to call something ridiculous. And this goes back to Hobbes in some respects is to say that you're better than it. You're above it, right? You're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be bothered with this thing because you are superior to it. So in some respects, Wollstonecraft is indebted to both of the traditions that I've discussed, right? She's indebted to Shaftesbury in the sense that she wants to use ridicule as, a, as, a, as, an, as an emancipatory tool. But she's also, I think, somewhat indebted to Hobbes or the Hobbesian understanding of ridicule because she wants women to feel above certain kinds of uh, behavior, certain kinds of attacks that they will have to endure there is a kind of independence and dignity that comes from using ridicule in that way. And and again, we see this in contemporary discussions about how women should respond to the ridiculousness of people commenting to them in the streets or telling them to smile more um, and so forth that, you know, the response is one like that's, that's a ridiculous thing to do um, to, to sort of act that way. Um, and you should know better. Exactly, exactly. I actually start that chapter with a, um, an epigraph from Sarah Ahmed, who in her feminist toolkit in Living a Feminist Life, she she talks about the use of laughter um, in that vein. There is a kind of, there, that, 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 that laughing at something is, a, a, again, a kind of refusal. It's a refusal to take it seriously. Because sometimes, because you know, this is, again, a theme that goes throughout the book, sometimes to treat something seriously is to confer a kind of dignity on it. And, and this is, so going back to the abolitionists, a lot of those abolitionists who followed in, in Montesquieu's footsteps, you know, they, what they admired about Montesquieu is that he was, he was refusing to argue earnestly with the defenders of slavery because he didn't want to give them that dignity. And, you know, there, there is a, I think that's in a way what Wollstonecraft was trying to do with Burke. She didn't want to give him the dignity that comes with, with rational argumentation. Um, and the same thing, incidentally, happens with Frederick Douglass, who I briefly mentioned at the end of the abolitionist chapter. It's, what, it's one of the few moments where I step out of the 18th century, because I think Douglass, as an abolitionist, is sort of, some respect, in some respects, in the same tradition, because in his uh, famous address to the ladies of Rochester, um, 
you know, what to what to the slave is the Fourth of July. You know, he's he does a lot of things in that speech, but one of the things he does is refuse to argue about the equality of blacks and whites. Right? He refuses to argue for his own humanity. He says that, that those who would attempt to deny my humanity should be met with biting sarcasm and withering uh, ridicule. Right? So he he is he is very much in that camp that if you begin to argue the point, you essentially treat it as a debatable question, right? You treat it as a, a question that has multiple sides and we don't know who's right or who's wrong. And so we need to argue it out. And he wants to say, no, this is an open and shut case. I am a human being. I have the dignity of a human being. You will respect that. I'm not arguing with you on this, right? So that this notion of, of ridicule as a kind of refusal, kind of active refusal to, uh, to engage with an adversary on their terms. I mean, that is, uh, in some respects, what what ridicule is all about. Even going back to Shaftesbury, right? He he thought that you know you don't engage always with your adversary on the grounds of or on the terrain of argument. Sometimes you need something else. And and so I I wanted to ask you this question that as I was reading through the the sort of conversation that you are sort of unearthing and and putting together in this really fascinating book. What I found also was that there is kind of a personal and political side to sarcasm and ridicule. Um, And you were just talking a little bit about it in terms of like how the person like Frederick Douglass is refusing to engage um, on certain questions that are personal as well as political. Um, And, you know, we, we have this, this, um, sort of retort from the 1970s second wave feminists, the personal is political, Um, but that this is something that's going on within the context of ridicule because it's often directed towards another person. Um, I mean, it may be directed at the House of Commons or something, but it's, it's specifically oftentimes directed at another person. Is this something that you sort of struggling with as you were um, researching this to sort of tease out the political, the personal, the theoretical? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you're absolutely right. So some of the early anxieties about ridicule um, after Shaftesbury publishes the letter concerning enthusiasm concerns the subject matter of ridicule rather than the personal element, right? So Mary Astell, um, a... uh, philosopher, contemporary of Shaftesbury's, you know, she, resp- uh, she publishes a rebuttal uh, to Shaftesbury where she, she argues that, you know, when you allow ridicule to, to be free, as it were, um, you know, there's an anarchic quality to it. It won't respect any kind of boundaries you put on it. And particularly, you have to be careful in the realm of, of religion, because if you start to make fun of religious enthusiasts or pro- uh, false prophets or, uh, or fanatics, then that you know, where, where, do you, where do you stop? It's sort of a slippery slope argument that very quickly you're going to find yourself mocking um, the institution of religion as such. And, and, and Astell was you know, a committed Christian and, and was worried that there was a deeply irreligious, uh, maybe even atheistic uh, thrust to a lot of what Shaftesbury was trying to do. So some of the early anxieties concern subject matter. You can't, okay, there are certain topics you just don't go you don't go there, right? You don't go to religion with ridicule. Um, even even some of Shaftesbury's defenders, like Hutchison, they try to like they try to have it both ways. They say, oh, "Well, yes, it's okay to mock religious fanatics as long as you sort of follow it up with 
uh, a declaration of respect or reverence for religion as such, right? So he has this. He tries to come up with these rules for how you use ridicule. You can you can mock something that is uh, that is you know that it, that is pretends to be great and isn't. Uh, you can use it to expose uh, pretentiousness and so on. But if 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 we're talking about something like religion, you've got to uh, uh, you've got to put the brakes on. You've got to make sure that the uh, if you like the part of religion that is truly worthy of respect is respected, right? Remains respected. But um, there but there is then of course the the, the interpersonal uh, as well. And and I think the um, one of the things that's sort of interesting about this debate is that um, you know when many of us who are teachers of students, you know, we're grading essays and so on. And one of the things we'll, we'll, we'll do is, is say, look, you can't argue ad hominem, right? You can't, don't attack the author, attack their arguments. Um, you know, we, we consider that a fallacy, right? You say, this is just something you shouldn't do. In the 18th century, um, it wasn't so clear cut as that. And partly because the personal and the argumentative were so closely intertwined. So in the case of, um, in the case of uh, the so-called common sense philosophers of, of 18th century Aberdeen, you know, when a lot of their argument against Hume's skepticism, which I talk a bit about in chapter four, was that, well, if you were to live your life as a skeptic uh, or as a radical skeptic, a Peronian skeptic, you wouldn't be able to navigate the social or even physical world because you would be constantly doubting the evidence of your senses. You'd be constantly doubting whether other people were even there, uh, whether they existed, whether, you know. So, the, and for them, this was, that was prima facie grounds for rejecting that philosophy, right? It wasn't that this was, uh, in other words, the, 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 the embodiment, the, the putting into practice of the philosophy um, could tell you much about its validity. Um, and so if you saw if you saw someone who professed to be a philosopher of a certain sort and then their behavior didn't match that their philosophy, that in itself is grounds for rejecting the philosophy. That today we might say, well, that's just their personal behavior or what their personal conduct uh, has nothing to do with their arguments. Whereas for many philosophers in the 18th century, and this I think they're getting a little bit from ancient philosophy, where it was the same thing, that say, no, it that philosophy is about uh, lived experience as much as it is about arguments on a page. And so if, if skepticism isn't, it leads to behaviors that are practically absurd, then skepticism has to be absurd, right? There's, there, there's something, it's not just that it's a, a, a philosophy that is difficult to implement in practice or that has a, a fraught relationship with practice. It's a false philosophy or, or an absurd one. And, and so I, I really did find this very interesting because I often think about and talk to my students about people like Thomas Jefferson, who's writing on the page and, and his conduct um, are, are very different. Um, and, and particularly for Americans, obviously, that, that he's wrapped up so much in our founding and the declaration. But there is this you know, question about what did he write and what did he do? Um, and and yeah, certainly received some ridicule from various various members who were opposed to him politically as well. Um, but that's that's a little bit of a, of a side commentary. Um, Ross, what are you working on now? Now that you've conquered ridicule in 18th century Britain. <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure that I've I've conquered the topic. <laughs> um, maybe I'll uh, I'll need to to. Uh, um to work on it further. No, at the moment, uh, two things. Um, 
I'm uh, writing a short book on Edmund Burke um, uh, that is part of the Classic Thinkers uh, series that Polity have. So um, that's preoccupying my days. Um, but then I'm also trying to build off some of the research that I've done for this work into um, 18th century abolitionism. Um, I'd like to try and uh, begin on a project that looks at the, the practical process of emancipating slaves uh, in 18th century thought. So there's there's the because because there's the the issue of the slave trade abolition and the issue of the abolition of the institution of slavery those two things are very often conflated in our minds but were quite separate for many 18th century uh, thinkers they thought that abolishing the trade uh, was something that had to come first and then we think about later on what happens to the institution of slavery as such and one of the great worries that many even abolitionists had was that uh, the degrading character of slavery unfits the enslaved for a return to uh, to uh, civic life, or in some cases, a, an entry to civic life for the first time. So I'm interested in how uh, different uh, political thinkers in the 18th century tried to uh, navigate that difficulty. How do you prepare, uh, if you are interested in abolishing slavery, do you just do it in, in one fell swoop? Uh, or do you try and come up with some sort of transition period in which the enslaved are uh, you know receive some kind of education that would equip them for a free political life? These sorts of questions are extremely naughty questions. They're not easy questions, and yeah, that is the literature that I'm currently kind of wading through. What it will produce, I don't know, but um, you know, watch the space. Well, I look forward to talking to you about one or both of those books as they come forward. Um, and I'm always looking for more guidance on Edmund Burke, so I do look forward to that short. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> short book on Edmund Burke. No, it will be short. It's, uh, I've been told it has to be. The word limit's quite limited, you know, so. Uh, well, I would like to thank Ross Carroll for joining me today on the New Books and Political Science podcast to talk about Uncivil Mirth, Ridicule in Enlightenment Britain. This is published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Um, and is available at Princeton University Press's website and any place else people buy books. Um, and thank you for joining me from Dublin. Thanks very much, Lily.